Welcome to Seminars at Steamboat, lectures on important public policy issues recorded at the Strings Music Pavilion in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. The following seminar features James Bruce, Ph.D., a former senior executive officer at the CIA, an adjunct researcher and former senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, and an adjunct professor at Georgetown and Florida Atlantic Universities. This seminar was recorded on July 19, 2021, and was introduced by seminar's board member, Gary Nelson. Last year at seminars, we heard two fascinating uh, presentations on foreign policy. Dr. Kathleen Hall Jameson spoke about the Russian cyber attacks on the U.S. election in 2016 and 2020, and Admiral James Stavridis gave an extraordinary assessment of global affairs, uh, including threats to the U.S., uh, with an emphasis on China. Today, we are delving into the intelligence threat to the U.S. from abroad, and we have the perfect speaker to uh, lead this discussion. Dr. James Bruce has spent his career in intelligence, including 24 years at the CIA. He was chief of counterintelligence training and the deputy national intelligence officer for science and technology. Following the CIA, he spent 12 years at the RAND Corporation, writing and doing research. Jim is the author of numerous articles and reports. He has taught at Georgetown University, Florida Atlantic, the RAND Graduate Institute, and the National War College. Jim also spent three years in Colorado, earning his PhD at the University of Denver from the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Uh, this presentation will be stimulative and informative, and even more so with your questions, as Joella has said. Uh, now we are pleased to welcome Dr. James B. Bruce on the foreign intelligence threat to the U.S., Russia, China, and other bad actors. Jim? Thank you, Gary. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you, Joella. I uh, greatly appreciate the kind introduction. Uh, I am just delighted uh, to be part of this important seminar series. Uh, I should add, I'm also delighted to be back in Colorado, uh, if only virtually. I'd rather do it the other way, but uh, for now, this is the best we can do. The presentation is about the foreign intelligence threat to the United States. Our focus is going to be principally on Russia and China, but we'll make mention of a, of a couple others as well. Um, let me start here with a, with a, a caveat. Um, my uh, former employers require that I tell everyone that these are my own, own views, my personal views, and they don't necessarily represent the views of CIA or the intelligence community or, or even the RAND Corporation. Uh, there's one other caveat I wanna add, and that is that uh, in looking over the presentation that I, uh, that I wanted to give, I found that there's just uh, more information in the PowerPoint uh, than the time allowed. So I'm gonna skip over some of the slides and put some others on fast forward and we can come back to those topics uh, in the Q&A uh, if, uh, if anybody wants, wants to. So uh, let's start here. This is a simple roadmap of where we wanna go. We're gonna start with threats and, uh, and uh, you can see that we're gonna go through a few countries and some other topics and uh, wind up with some, key take, uh, with some key takeaways. So let's start with the issue of foreign threats. Uh, one important question is how, how do we identify what threats are? By we, I mean, how, do we, how does the intelligence community or the United States government identify foreign threats. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, let me define threat first, and that's basically what foreign intelligence services try to get from us. They, they aim for our 
classified information, intellectual property, uh, uh, advanced technologies, any, any information of value. And they do that by targeting government, corporations, and individuals uh, through different means of espionage. This is really important because uh, uh, intelligence can force multiply the threats that come from military and economic and, uh, and political forces. So uh, there's uh, one important threat document that you should know about in one process. The threat document is called the Annual Threat Assessment. It's prepared by the intelligence community for presentation to Congress. They do that yearly. Uh, and uh, typically they're done in, or they're presented actually in, uh, in uh, uh, February. Uh, these are unclassified presentations, but they're always followed up with uh, classified discussions afterward. Um, they focus on the most important threats that the, that, the, that the intelligence community anticipates facing in the coming year. There's another process just worth mentioning. It's called the NIPF or National Intelligence Priorities Framework. This is a process that's run by the Director of National Intelligence in very close coordination with the White House. And what they try to do is to get the White House involved in helping the community select the prioritization for um, intelligence collection and analysis. So what the intelligence community does is basically uh, be responsive to the priorities from the White House. There's something else that's really important here, and that's that the, the, the new threats that we're now facing uh, from uh, cyber attacks, uh, this truly is uh, new. And if you look at the history of revolutions in intelligence, we can go back to really the origins that have to, have to do with spying, that is to say recruiting spies and classic espionage. Uh, which is sometimes referred to, uh, perhaps only uh, humorously, uh, as the second oldest profession. Uh, radio intercept and then signals intelligence followed. That was really at the early part of the 20th century. Then I think what the, the up until cyber, the most important revolution we had in intelligence was space-based collection. Launch satellites and multiple, multiple orbits with many sensors. And so we can put satellites in low Earth orbit and uh, geosynchronous, which is to say they stay in, stay in the same place all the time in a variety of other orbits and put a lot of different sensors on that collect electro-optical. Uh, 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 we have uh, radar sensors, infrared sensors, and uh, video. There's a lot of different things they can do with uh, from, from space. But all of that actually pales in comparison, I, I think, with the new revolution that we have in cyber attacks. Uh, the cyber era has provided extraordinary capabilities uh, to intelligence and really to a lot of other actors that are not technically intelligence services uh, that we've never really seen before. In general, we have to say that cyber weapons have become a real game changer. And I hope the rest of my presentation makes that point clearly. Uh, let me start here with just a comment or two on intelligence and counterintelligence. Basically, intelligence means collecting and analyzing information that we get from abroad. Counterintelligence is countering the foreign intelligence services that target us. And basically what counterintelligence means is catching spies and supporting operations, uh, but increasingly, uh, we have to focus on the topic of how do we counter cyber attacks and uh, that's a really important issue. I also want to make a quick editorial point that counterintelligence really depends on the kind of governments. Authoritarian governments are sometimes actually referred to as counterintelligence states. Here counterintelligence plays a major role in keeping dictators in power which puts a big emphasis on internal security as a major counterintelligence function uh, and um, Counterintelligence helps these dictators wield vast powers over its citizenry. Democratic states, on the other hand, like the one we live in, uh, substantially limit counterintelligence. They put curbs on it, mainly to protect individual liberties and rights that are laid out in the, uh, in the Bill of Rights and the First Ten Amendments. And the net result basically is that limited counterintelligence means limited counterintelligence effectiveness. 
So in intelligence and in counterintelligence, dictatorships do have an asymmetric advantage over democracies. A quick point here that the United States has been a very uh, attractive, even lucrative intelligence target for many, many countries. Uh, the column in the left shows, uh, shows the cases uh, that were ident identified and, uh, and uh, uh, arrested, prosecuted, indicted, and convicted uh, just in that 50-year period. Uh, those are uh, amazing numbers, but they are only really the tip of the iceberg because there are even more cases that we call non-prosecuted cases for a variety of reasons. Our friends and allies that spy against us are listed in the right column, and I will try to return to that subject later in the presentation. The two uh, top threats that we face from uh, foreign intelligence are Russia and China. There is some debate about which is the bigger threat, and I don't think there is consensus on that at the moment. <clears throat> Russia, now headed by Vladimir Putin, who's been in power now really for 21 years, who has, actually is a former KGB officer, a former intelligence officer in Russia, and he's taken Russia in some directions that have helped maintain uh, its hostility to the United States. So if you take a look at the, at the national security ambitions of, of Russia, the first thing you can ask is, well, what is the threat from Russia? And the answer, uh, put very briefly, is the threat is selecting our leaders, uh, including president, uh, dividing our society, undermining our democracy and our foreign policy objectives, uh, destroying NATO. And there's an even, even an existential threat uh, from Russia that no other nation really poses in that degree. Uh, Putin gave a talk in 2005 where he had, uh, where he's made the point that the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, or he just said century. Uh, that's a hugely important statement because it, what it really does is, is uh, provide an insight into the nature of Russian uh, revengeism, which is to say it, it attempts to reestablish control over territories that they held under the Soviet Union. Uh, there's a long heritage here with the KGB, and uh, the bottom line, I would say, is that uh, all of the threats that the Soviet Union used to pose to us uh, are still there, or near, or nearly all of them, and uh, in some cases, are act they're actually worse. And what the United States has not been able to do is to shed this Cold War status it had as uh, Russia's main enemy. So this continues to be a, a serious problem for the United States. Um, what, they, what the Russians have done uh, is to adapt intelligence to their circumstances. Uh, they've adapted their methods of espionage and covert influence uh, for this century, which is to say they brought it into the information age. Uh, I can talk about these agencies later. But the basic story here is that, uh, is that if you are looking for evidence of the effect of cyber attack, uh, you need to look no further than the 2016 presidential election in the United States. I want to give you a heads up. There's a little bit of controversy uh, uh, over this issue because um, some people say that the Russians had no influence whatever on the outcome of the election. Uh, others who have looked at it more carefully and, and, have, uh, and have looked at the empirical data, and I will talk about some of this a little bit later, uh, can draw a different conclusion. Namely, uh, the fact that the Russians uh, may have tipped the, tipped the scales in such a way uh, as to have uh, helped Trump come to power in a way that he would not have been able to do had it not been for Russian intervention. So the cyber attacks that we experienced during the 2016 election are essentially of three types. One was uh, covert action, sweeping and sustained political influence operations that blanketed social media. There was also electronic theft uh, that supported covert action, uh, principally the cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee and subsequently the controlled leaks of the DNC emails and other documents uh, on WikiLeaks. 
And finally, there were attempts against all 50 states to probe to see if they could manipulate the actual uh, uh, elections infrastructure through voter registration and online voting. Uh, happily, there was, there was no, uh, no success there uh, and no effect. I've uh, mentioned General Garasimov here, uh, who, has, uh, uh, who is credited along with Primakov, uh, former foreign minister, um, with this concept of hybrid warfare, where there is a tremendous emphasis on the notion of, of conquest through cyber attack. In other words, through, uh, through nonviolent means. The Internet Research Agency, uh, uh, or the IRA, and that's not Irish Republican Army, um, uh, has been a major player uh, uh, in, uh, in Russian cyber, cyber world, in, in the intelligence cyber world uh, in, in Russia, and they were, uh, they were absolutely instrumental in the 2016 elections. Um, I won't go over in detail here uh, what they did, but basically this is not a government organization. This really belongs to the private sector. And, uh, you know, Putin could say that, uh, that uh, it's actually, uh, you know, the bad guys uh, that aren't, have nothing to do with Russian government that are doing this stuff. Uh, of course, that's, uh, that's simply not true. Actually, 13 Russians, in, including a number of GRU officers, that's the Russian military intelligence, uh, and, uh, three Russian or and three Russian organizations were actually indicted after the Mueller report uh, named them as uh, uh, named them uh, for their uh, for these criminal actions. One other concept I want to mention here is that when you look at stuff on the internet, let's say Facebook or some of the other social platforms, to the extent that people actually not just read it but interact with it, uh, we call these engagements or interaction. If they share the content with their friends or if they if they click on like it or they react to it or uh, send an emoji or a comment uh, along the way, we call that interaction uh, or engagement. Um, and that's actually a metric of how, uh, of how influential uh, uh, postings are. So this is, this is an extremely, extremely important idea. Um, uh, uh, now, there's a, tr a tremendous amount of quantitative information here that I just can't give you in, uh, in detail, but uh, most of it's on the screen. Um, I want to point out that, uh, uh, that after the 2016 election, Jared Kushner, advisor to Trump, was asked uh, about the impact of, uh, of uh, Russians on social media during the election. And Kushner just brushed it off. He gave a very dismissive comment that said something like, well, there were only a handful of Facebook postings. Of course, that's, uh, that's simply not true. That is actually a fallacious, um, indefensible statement. Uh, with Facebook, there were over 126 million, 126 million users um, uh, who experienced uh, getting, receiving uh, uh, Russian postings on social media. Instagram, Twitter also had a very heavy content. And look at the amounts of engagements. If you look at the engagement numbers, you'll see that these were not just, uh, not just posted there. There were actually a tremendous amount of engagement uh, 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 with the postings that the IRA was, uh, was putting on social media. In YouTube, they uploaded uh, over 1,100 videos. And these weren't the only platforms that, uh, that they populated with their propaganda. Uh, you can see the list of some others. The main point I want to make about this is that every single ad, posting, message, and tweet, and video that pur was purported to be an American source. Actually, every single one of them originated in Russia, the ones that I'm talking about here. And they were all masked with a US identity. So US users on Facebook and the other social media actually thought that they were reading stuff written by Americans. Actually, they were reading stuff written by Russian intelligence. Uh, so you can go through the Facebook ads, the organic postings I'll talk about in just a minute. But the point I want to make here is that on, just on Twitter alone, um, uh, it hit more than a, a mil nearly a million and a half Twitter users. But with the retweets, the tweets that the Russians posted were actually presented 
288 million times. I mean, you can't even get your head around these numbers. And of course, the purpose of all these postings was what we called, what the Russians called desinformatia, which is disinformation. It's propaganda. The Russians successfully targeted three different groups. This is a very sophisticated strategy. Three different groups that were using US social media, uh, the right, right wing and right leaning groups. They aimed uh, to, to generate extreme anger and suspicion. Uh, they pushed such themes as uh, voter fraud, uh, illegal participation in the election, conspiracy theories, and uh, Hillary Clinton's attempts to steal the election. In the case of targeting the blacks, there was a very, very specific campaign to do that. And it was all about, it was all about voter suppression. They basically, uh, they basically uh, made the case and a tremendous amount of propaganda about why blacks should not vote. And as it turns out, the blacks did not vote in the same numbers on the 2016 elections as they did in the previous ones. Uh, they targeted the left groups uh, in, in a slightly different way, mainly to get, uh, to get leftists and liberals to vote for any candidate uh, other than Hillary Clinton. So th these, were, these were very effective camp, uh, campaigns and very sophisticated uh, in their targeting. Just to, just to mention a few examples, I'll just show these visually and not, uh, not comment on them, but I do want you to see some of these postings in case you haven't seen them. By the way, those of you who saw the Kathleen uh, Hall Jameson presentation last year um, got, a, got a, a much more in-depth discussion of this. So it's another uh, reason why I don't have to go in depth here, but they stress such things as the border wall, the second amendment, uh, uh, gun rights. Uh, these were these were uh, major campaigns of the of the Russian narrative to generate uh, different reactions from different audiences. I mentioned the organic posts. These are tailored messages um, uh, that, that appear on IRA fake pages or user accounts. And if you take a look at the postings on Facebook, infinitely more. I mean, like there was uh, like 3,500 ads, but 67,000 uh, Facebook organic posts. These are very specific tailored messages to to specific people on specific themes responding to specific issues. Instagram, and look at this, nearly eight and a half million, uh, uh, million tweets. And so, and the run up to, and just uh, and during the 2016 election, uh, that IRA generated uh, increasing levels of interaction in terms of likes and sharing and so forth. And if you take a look at the interaction, nearly 31 million uh, shares on, on Facebook, uh, nearly 39 million uh, likes, emojis and comments. It was, it was just a tremendous, it's a, it's an extremely uh, 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 disconcerting metric when you're looking at the impact of propaganda. Now, one can say, "Hey, you know, this is just propaganda. What the? It has it maybe maybe it doesn't have any effect at all." Actually, it did have a pretty pretty uh, significant effects, and uh, we can explain the Russian success on two levels. One is the way it's, uh, the way the micro targeting worked, and secondly, through insider information. Let me just simply say that that the, that the, uh, that the, on social media. You can target ads. You can uh, focus them on very specific areas. For example, one quarter of the Facebook ads that Russia ran were targeted to specific locations, like who, like the swing states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. These are all heavily targeted, as were other states that were won by Obama in 2012. Why? Because they wanted to siphon off a lot of the, the a lot of the Obama vote. 35 of 50 states in the United States were targeted by uh, by the IRA. Uh, and, uh, and uh, nearly a dozen of them were very heavily targeted. So the point here is that Facebook allows the users to target ads based also on congressional districts. And more than that, uh, a feature is that they also can, will provide feedback to the buyers of these ads about how effective uh, their ads are and how they can refine their ads uh, to, get a, to, to have a bigger effect. Now, here's one really important point I want you to know. 
Uh, this is, as you know, a very close election, but Trump won the Electoral College uh, by, by winning three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. If you total up all of the votes in those three states, um, the difference adds up to just 77,640 votes. Those votes cast in the three most important swing states actually swung the election. So anybody who says to you, my vote doesn't count, doesn't get it. They, they really just don't understand the importance of every, of, er, of every single vote. That amounted to less than 1% of the votes cast in those three states. 0.6% of votes cast in those three swing states actually turned the election over to Trump. So we have to say, well, how is it that, uh, that the uh, that Russian intelligence is able to focus on that? Well, here's how. If you read the Mueller report, you know he gave a lot of emphasis in the Mueller report to the to this notion of the uh, so-called Trump Tower meeting as, uh, as evidence of collusion. Well, I think uh, Mueller was off the center. There was a meeting that was significant, several meetings that were significantly more important than the, uh, uh, than the Trump Tower meeting. And it was the meetings between uh, uh, Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, uh, and Konstantin Kalimnik, who, Kalimnik uh, who was a Russian intelligence officer. Uh, they met several times, but a very important meeting happened at the at the Grand Havana Club just uh, uh, in New York City, just two months before the actual election. What did they discuss? Well, they talked about Ukraine and how, how Trump could help uh, Russia with the Ukraine problem by hiving off uh, much of the Eastern Ukraine. And they also talked about the, uh, about the Trump campaign strategy. Manafort provided Kalimnik, let me say this again, a Russian intelligence officer with very detailed messaging strategy uh, and with internal polling data and discussed the specific battleground states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, uh, also Minnesota and a few others. Now, the point here is that it was not just at this meeting, although we think that was probably the most important meeting, but he had also shared Trump internal polling data months before and months after that meeting. What are the implications? The implications are that the Russians had insider knowledge about how to focus and target very specific attacks on cyber attacks on social media to sway the vote. So we can ask the question, well, did they? Well, as you know from, your, from the uh, presentation last year by Kathleen Hall Jamison, the short answer is yes. She wrote, I think, what is an outstanding book uh, on uh, cyber war, quote, how the Russian hackers and trolls helped elect the president. Uh, it's, a, it's an extremely scholarly and empirically detailed work. Uh, but the bottom line is that she explains how the Russian, how the Russian trolls disguised as Americans were able to have big effects by magnifying uh, social disruption and divisiveness, how they reweighted the climate of opinion against Clinton and framed the news content. And the bottom line here is that, the, is that, uh, is that she shows how well the Russians really understood uh, the, the dynamics of this 2016 election and how the Russians were so adept at the extensive messaging and how they specifically aligned their, their themes, their narratives uh, uh, with, the, with the Trump campaign. So in the end, it turns out that uh, the white evangelicals and military supported, uh, supported Trump over the, uh, over the summer more than they had before. The Bernie Sanders supporters and blacks didn't vote in the numbers that could have gotten Clinton elected. Uh, the same thing was true with the Green Party uh, in, uh, uh, in, two, in two of the swing states that she would have carried uh, uh, if, the vote, if the vote had gone to her instead of the Greens. And finally, I mentioned the voter suppression of the blacks of black turnout actually was down from past years and white turnout was up. Her bottom line, with all of these pro-Trump factors at play, it was the late deciders who disapproved of both candidates voted disproportionately for Trump.
Now, there's another study. Uh, you have not heard the Gunther presentation, but maybe you read the article. I, I certainly hope so, but it's, a, it's in a, a scholarly journal. I've listened in, the, in my references. Uh, Gunther and two of his colleagues are professors at Ohio State University. They're political scientists. They actually specialize in voting behavior. They specialize in how elections are won or lost. Um, and, what they, and there's a simple hypothesis here. Uh, why did so many of, of the Obama voters in 2012 defect from Obama and not support Hillary Clinton. Uh, basically, Trump won six states that Obama had won in 2012. Well, it turns out that just 77%, about three out of four of the, of the Obama voters in 2012 actually supported Clinton. Well, what happened to the rest? Where'd they go? 10% of them voted for Trump. 4% uh, for minor parties and 8% didn't even vote at all. Now, I mentioned to you before, this is, re this is really important about all of the uh, ads and, and, and uh, organic postings. There were, there were a number of very basic uh, fake news themes. There were just lies uh, that the Russians were posting. And let me tell you what three of them were because these became part of the Gunther study. One important theme was that uh, Hillary Clinton is in poor health due to serious illness. Another one was, uh, put your seatbelt on here, Pope Francis endorsed Donald Trump. And a third one was that uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, had actually approved weapon sales uh, to the terrorist group ISIS, an avowed enemy of the United States. All of these are lies. Every single, all three of those things are absolutely, totally, 100% of, of falsehoods. But here was the, here's what the Gunther study did. They polled people uh, uh, who had voted in the election, and here's what they found. Of those who didn't believe any of, any of those fake messages, nine out of 10 of them voted for Clinton. Of those who believed only one of those messages, well, uh, only six out of 10 voted for Clinton. But of those who believed two or three of those false messages, less than two out of 10 voted for Clinton. You see the drop-off in support for Clinton correlates directly with believing in fake news. And what the Gunther study shows is that belief in these fake news stories is very strongly correlated, strongly linked to the defection of the Democratic ticket from the Democratic ticket by the, by the Obama voters in the previous election. Well, this is extremely important. So Gunther concludes that for those defecting from Clinton, believing fake news had a greater effect than anything else. And when you go back to the, uh, back to the uh, voting uh, toll that I mentioned before, uh, they show specifically uh, the states of, of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, uh, uh, and the, how those votes total up to 77,000. Again, just 0.6% of the total vote, how uh, that had, the, uh, had a decisive impact on the votes cast in those states. And what they conclude is that even a modest impact of fake news might have been decisive. So if you look at the three basic studies, Jamison, Gunther, and the Gorodnichenko study, which I have not quoted, um, what you find here is, is not just persuasive, but in my mind, compelling evidence uh, that, the, that the Russians turned the election uh, in Trump's favor. Uh, I, uh, so if you're looking for, uh, uh, for an outstanding example, of the impact on social media by uh, by cyber targeting, uh, this is this is the, I think the best case of all. And so you can ask the question: Why so? Why has cyber become so important to foreign intelligence? Obviously, for the covert influence, and I think I just showed you uh, the most uh, compelling and the most dramatic example of that. They've also used it for intimidation by attacking and, and taking down much of the infrastructure uh, on the former Soviet state Georgia uh, and Estonia uh, in Ukraine. These were huge, huge cyber attacks on those countries. They use it for digital theft. 
Um, they, for example, the Russians cracked into 500 million, let me say that again, 500 million Yahoo accounts, uh, uh, email accounts. Do you know that that remains the single largest cyber attack so far in the history of the United States by any foreign power? Uh, was it China? No, it was Russia. Uh, we've already talked about the DNC and, of course, the solar winds attack, uh, of, of which the, I think the damage assessment will probably go on for another, two, another couple of years. Uh, we should mention uh, uh, ransomware uh, uh, and damage to U.S. infrastructure, such as Colonial Pipeline and that meat supply house and attacks on the food supply chain. Here's the point about Russia. All three intelligence services, the two that succeeded the KGB, which are the SVR, the Foreign Service, and the FSB, which is the Domestic Service, and the GRU, the military service, all three of them are fully aboard, fully armed, and fully engaged uh, in this cyber war against the United States. I should add, it's not just those government organizations because private hackers and criminal groups are also heavily engaged in attacking the United States, as Biden has pointed out uh, 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 several times, even direct, directly to Putin. So the point here is that there, the boundary lines between the private sector and the public sector in Russia are extremely blurred, particularly when it comes to cyber attacks. So, uh, so hackers and criminal groups in Russia, uh, Putin can say, well, I don't have any control over them. They're not, they're not part of the government. That is just nonsense. That's an absolute lie. These people and these groups target America with a full blessing, endorsement, and support uh, of the Russian government. Uh, let me turn here, if I can, to, uh, if I can to China, because uh, China is another very worrisome uh, foreign intelligence power. Uh, that's uh, Xi Jinping, uh, uh, who's pictured here. Uh, who came up through the ranks of the Chinese Communist Party uh, and, and government. Uh, he, he's been in charge since uh, 2013. So uh, we call China a near peer competitor, but the important thing about the Chinese intelligence is this is really a rather different model. It's not your standard old espionage like the KGB or even the new adaptive espionage that we see in the, in the post-Soviet Russia. Uh, they have a very different approach. Let's start here with the threats. What are the China threats? And the short answer is major theft, cyber theft of intellectual property, trade secrets, and classified information. And they are motivated to do this because they use it to strengthen the Chinese economy and the Chinese military. And that simultaneously, because it is a zero sum game in some ways, weakens our own. There's also pro-China uh, pro covert influence on, uh, on large swaths of the US youth uh, and general population. And I'll explain this in a moment here. Chinese intelligence has a different approach, and we refer to this as the whole of society approach. And uh, what, that basic, what that basically means is that, is that if you look at the, if you, this is an important study by Nicholas Eftimiadis. Uh, this small sector right here, 16% of that circle is uh, Chinese intelligence. All the rest are different organizations. These are state-owned enterprises. These are private companies. This is the, this is the People's Liberation Army. Uh, and these are other parts of Chinese uh, societies, such as university. Uh, so the Chinese, are, we, we know that at least 35 universities uh, have been involved in prosecutions throughout the world uh, of, uh, of Chinese cyber attacks. And there are seven universities that are very closely connected with the, with the whole cyber enterprise uh, in, uh, in China. If you take a look at their massive uh, collection effort, they're targeting specifically, and take a look at those five bullets here. These are all high technology things of great value to China uh, that, were, that, they, that they steal 
from the United States, other countries too, but mainly from the United States. And if you take a look, if you take a look at those things, aero, aerospace and IT, biotech, clean energy, um, advanced manufacturing, these are extremely important, important parts of a, of, a, of a viable modern, modern economy. Where are they getting it from? Much of it comes from the United States. Now, this is really important because uh, the United States uses intelligence uh, principally for national security reasons, as the Chinese do, but they also mainly use it to provide intelligence support to the economy. The Chinese economy is being built on information that is stolen by Chinese intelligence and provided uh, 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 to, to the China, to Chinese economy. So what they're focusing on developing their own industries and transferring foreign wealth to China. And I would add quickly, uh, they have a lot of support in law. Uh, who is required to support uh, uh, foreign intelligence by law? Answer, all, go all government departments, all private industry, all citizens at home, and even those abroad. Um, if you are a Chinese citizen, even living in a foreign country, you are required by Chinese law to support Chinese intelligence. So this is a, a very comprehensive legal approach and ensures the full full collaboration of everybody, of every important sector of China in supporting Chinese intelligence. Now, what do they target? Well, let's start with intellectual property. They have 200 programs that look like this one. Let me talk about the Thousand Talents Program. This is a program that's designed to recruit high quality researchers um, to provide economic uh, and military uh, uh, intellectual property to China. Uh, they've already recruited over 7,000 people. By the way, these are this, that's a very am, ambitious target. They started out wanting 2,000, they got 7,000. Three of them are Nobel laureates. These are really highly qualified researchers, well-published university professors, many in the United States and, uh, and, and in other countries. And they seek to conceal their affiliation with the Thousand Talents Program uh, uh, from, from the United States government. The Chinese provide very, very uh, attractive uh, inducements uh, uh, and, uh, and incentives uh, to these researchers to help them steal intellectual property. So they're basically doing it not on their not with their own cyber capabilities, but recruiting others to use uh, to use their uh, their capabilities, um, uh, including cyber, uh, to steal in intellectual property in this Thousand Talents program. They fully exploit the grant system by uh, uh, by uh, National Health, the National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, National Labs. The good news here, and there is good news. This Thousand Talents program and others like it are now high on Congress's list and on the uh, on now uh, finally at long last on the FBI's radar screen. Uh, they're also targeting U.S. education. They do this through the so-called Confucius Institutes. These are cultural centers that provide Chinese language training. They turn out to actually to be a main instrument of uh, of the of the Chinese government. Uh, there they have 500 of these institutes worldwide. Uh, more than 20% of them are actually in the United States. The United States is the most heavily targeted country uh, uh, with, the, with these Confucius Institutes. Uh, the, the numbers are, are, are big and their basic goal essentially uh, is, to, is to create favorable opinion about China uh, and uh, about the, and Chinese narratives, including restricting, we have uh, evidence of, of restricting freedom of speech on the hot button issues for China, which are Tiananmen Square and Tibet Hong Kong, Taiwan, and I would add more recently, uh, the Uyghurs in, uh, uh, in uh, Xinjiang province. Um, happily, the United States government has talked to universities about this and is trying to discourage uh, university participation. And they've had uh, limited success so far. The Confucius Institutes operate at the level of universities. The Confucian, Confucius classrooms operate at the level of kindergarten 
through grades one through 12. They have not had the same significant impact there yet, uh, but that's where they're heading. They're targeting Hollywood. How? Because they are significantly funding um, um, uh, major movie uh, making enter enterprises. Uh, and, and, um, and Hollywood realized that there's a huge box market, box office market uh, in China. So basically a lot of the producers who get Chinese funding are, are willing to go along. What the Chinese have successfully done is to shape a number of movie plots to treat China favorably, uh, propagandizing US domestic policies, uh, uh, audiences with uh, pro-China teams. So uh, even the New York Times has pointed out that uh, the Chinese are seeking to control uh, the global narrative to pre present a friendlier, less menacing image of China uh, through, through the movies. So the, uh, the point here, also US actors are either punished or rewarded depending on their cooperation with these, with these programs. The two pictured here, Richard Gere and Sandra Bullock have been non-cooperative and they've not agreed uh, to some of the changes sought by the Chinese in movies they're in and they've been put on the, uh, uh, on the unfavorable list for China, uh, restricted from traveling in China and, and, and other things. Hey Jim, this is uh, Gary Nelson. Um, yes, Gary. We want to do a couple more slides and then we've covered a lot of material and we've got some really good questions to, uh, to yes. answer. Yes, yes, yeah, let me, let me do that, uh, uh, Gary, right now. Um, so I'll skip, I'll skip just, to, just to indicate video games is an extremely important uh, uh, sector here. It's actually 30 to 50 times uh, uh, larger than Hollywood. And uh, one, one game called Homefront was initially uh, designed to show China uh, Chinese invasion of the United States. The Chinese successfully made it the, made it into North Korea uh, instead of China. Uh, they've been, they've had very been very successful in their cyber attacks. We can talk about these later. Titan Rain, Operation Aurora, and the open and, and the uh, Office of Personnel Management data breach, which is really extra, really extraordinary. So uh, I'll just summarize China by saying that by Eftemiadis' study uh, shows that and he, his, his belief that the Chinese intelligence threat may actually be changing the global balance of power. That's hugely ambitious. I'm gonna skip over Iran and North Korea uh, for the want of time and we'll, uh, we'll come back to these if, uh, if there's interest in them uh, in, the, in the question and answer. Uh, you know, and, I, and similarly with the non-state actors, there's an important story on WikiLeaks and we can also save that for the Q&A. Uh, similarly with the allies and friends. But let me, let me come here and just, uh, just mention very briefly in summary, uh, uh, three major important uh, uh, major important considerations when we consider the foreign intelligence threat. Let's call them three takeaways. One is that U.S. counterintelligence has got to get better. We got to be at least as good as or better than the threats we face. Mostly, I think this means uh, enhanced cyber ca uh, countering cyber capabilities. We need both defensive and offensive capabilities. I, I'll, uh, uh, CI infrastructure is important, but I would say countering cyber capabilities. Uh, must be an important part of what we do in counterintelligence. There's another trend going on in the United States that I'm certain everyone is aware of, and that's the decline of the importance of facts and truth and political discourse. Uh, what does this do? This really invites uh, foreign intervention uh, to take advantage of uh, so many of the, of the social and political divisions in the United States. There, there are huge consequences. I, I will make an editorial about social media platforms like Facebook requiring more, reg more regulation, but I will say that a fractured US public is certainly inviting as an inviting target for foreign intelligence services. Finally, here's the bigger issue. It really has to do with the survivability or the viability of democracy. I believe we're at a moment of peril uh, in US democracy. The root causes, of course, I believe are domestic issues, not foreign threats. Yet our problems do invite foreign intervention by dictators and other bad actors 
who wish us harm. Further, foreign intervention can further erode democracy and our democratic institutions. And I believe we're at a stage in our national life where effective US counterintelligence may be a key requisite for a viable American political system. Extremely important. And to accomplish that, I believe we need to prioritize counterintelligence and counter cyber capability as a mechanism to provide vital support to American democracy. I do have references that may be of interest and uh, I'm open for your questions. And Gary, I apologize if I went over by a few minutes. Uh, we do have some questions, Jim. And uh, first on Russia, uh, two or three questions. The, was, the, was the Russian disinformation less successful in the 2020 election? And if so, was, was it because they didn't try as hard or were we better at blocking uh, their efforts or were the voters uh, more sophisticated? Gary, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, I would like to say it was because they, first of all, the premise is correct. Uh, the, the Russians were, were slightly less active and certainly less effective in the 2020 election uh, than they were in the 2016 election. Um, we can, uh, right now, we don't have good evidence about why. We know they did some things differently. They actually ran a number, uh, a, a number of operations uh, on people, specific people close to Trump, but the social media presence wasn't nearly as strong. We can speculate, and the, some of the speculation has got to include the fact that uh, we were very concerned about what they would do in the midterm elections in 2018. And it turns out that what we did, and I do not have detailed information on this, we brought down a number of Russian intelligence servers, including from the, uh, from the uh, uh, Internet Research Agency, on the day of the 2018 elections. It is possible that the Russians were put on notice by uh, by our offensive uh, 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 cyber capabilities uh, and, and, and conceivably sought a lower profile, I think they might also have hoped that possibly Trump uh, could win this election on his own with less support from them. But of course, in that they, they were wrong. He was not able to win it on his own. Um, but so right now, all I can say is that, uh, is that uh, we, don't, we don't have good information to explain why, but we, we can speculate on that. But we can certainly, we can certainly say uh, that the 2020 elections were less uh, less uh, an active, effective target of Russian intelligence than 2016. There, there were two or three questions along the lines of, why is Russia so good at this and we apparently are not? Is it, you know, you might argue, well, the U.S. is such a target-rich environment, or you might argue that uh, we're not trying as hard or we don't know what we're doing. Well, cert certainly, uh, you're right, Gary, that we are a target-rich environment. But I want to go back to a to a slide I mentioned very early in the presentation, and that is that the dictatorships and authoritarian governments have an asymmetric advantage when it comes to counterintelligence, um, and uh, and actually when, when it comes to intelligence. And certainly, I think that's true in the cyber world. Uh, we're we're fragmented uh, in a lot of ways. For example, uh, if you look at the a recent Solar Winds attack uh, by Russia. Uh, the United States government has little or no control over the defensive cyber measures that private companies take. So here was a, here was a software <clears throat> that was penetrated by Russia. You know, I wish I could say, wish the darn government could have done something about that. But the truth is that's not in the government's bailiwick. So much of what we need in the way of cyber defense has to depend on the private sector. And I would say even that the, 
that the, that the, our cyber defenses in government depend mm -hmm. almost wholly on the private sector. So we've been lacking there. Now another another problem is that we we do have some offensive capabilities, and I I just mentioned the example of 2000 bringing down the Russian intelligence servers in, two, in the 2018 elections. We do have these offensive capabilities, but we've been very very restrained and modest as far as I know in using them because it, a it's a it's a highly classified and very, very sensitive area. And the big concern here, and we don't, and maybe we can talk about it a little bit later, uh, has to do with escalation control. With nuclear weapons, the, the uh, nuclear weapons deterrence, we had a much better understanding uh, of deterrence and how an action uh, can cause or stop another action. In the cyber world, we're in a whole new ball game here. There's just a lot of unknowns. And I think, uh, and I think uh, we've, been, we've been exercising considerable self-restraint in our offensive capabilities, not knowing where this is going to go. So, for example, if we conducted a major attack on, on Russia, let's say we let's say we targeted their infrastructure, we have to be prepared for the idea that they they could take down our power grids, they could take down our water supply, and through the and you know and through the colonial pipeline and that and that meat supply house, they've already demonstrated that they have our infrastructure on their targeting list, and they can certainly do something about it. So the problem the problem of uh, of uh, escalation control has been a big issue. And I don't think our government has actually sorted that out yet. On um, a specific uh, couple of questions on Facebook, um, did they know that the 2016 posts that were coming from Russia, it's not clear they should have known, it's not, you know, and, and is it evident that they are being more active in uh, looking for these things now? Yes, Gary, Gary that's, a, that's a really, really important question. The short answer is yes, they knew, but they didn't know much. For example, many of the Facebook ads were paid for in rubles, in Russian currency. So there's no mystery, so, so there's no mystery there, right? So they have to say, oh, okay, I see the Russians are buying ads. And I think at that point, it was like, uh, you know, it's no, it's no big deal, right? It's just, uh, just no big deal. But much of what, what the Russians did on Facebook was, was done in a way that made attribution very difficult. And we really got onto it later, really got onto it after the election. I don't think we had a, we did not have a very good appreciation. Uh, Facebook didn't, I don't, and I think the US government had a much, much better appreciation, but not nearly big enough. Obama for reasons that I remain to me inexplicable. Well, actually I, there are some, some reasons uh, that I think we can talk about. Uh, did not make a big deal about the Russian intervention uh, in the U.S. election on, uh, on Facebook and, and some of the other social, social media. So I, I would say we certainly could have done a better job. I don't know that we could have done, been, uh, been as effective. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, Trump, who is benefiting from this, of course, uh, you know, could have developed another narrative. And that is that, uh, that is that the Clinton administration is saying all of this stuff is coming from Russia. Of course, he denied repeatedly throughout the campaign and really throughout his next throughout his four-year term that the Russians had anything to do with this, and and frankly st uh, still denies it, uh, uh, and saying I accept Putin's explanation that these guys did, didn't do anything at all. So it was a government lapse. I regard it as a government failure. I frankly regard it as a significant intelligence failure, uh, but it's more of a, a more of a, a broad government failure. And uh, I have to say that the results of the 2020 election, in my mind are somewhat encouraging because among the reasons that we could speculate for the decline in Russian effectiveness may be the uh, Russian appreciation for the fact, and of course, Biden actually talked about this in the campaign, that there will be consequences 
if you if you if, if you try to intervene in this election, of course they did intervene, but not nearly in the same uh, measure that they did in 2016. Right. A couple of questions on China, uh, because uh, many people, including speakers here, and uh, really including uh, President Biden, have described China as as the bigger threat to the United States. Uh, the the, Chi the Chinese role in shaping movies and the gaming industry seems troublesome to many of us in the U.S. Can the U can U.S. government do anything as a matter of uh, public policy? This is a public policy seminar forum, so. Uh, I think the government is limited in what it can do forcefully. Uh, I think the government is not limited in what it can do uh, in the way of generating awareness uh, uh, awareness of the of the of these kinds of Chinese interventions and the consequences of doing so, um, but I think it, I, I think it would not work if the government went to a particular movie movie studio and said, "Well, we see that you've changed this movie uh, to reflect Chinese propaganda narratives, and we want you to stop that." You know, the movie producer can look at the government and say, "Hey, screw you! I got freedom of speech here, don't I?" So, so. From the standpoint of uh, taking a hard line, I think the government uh, the government is, is restricted um, uh, by you know by First Amendment by First Amendment limitations, and that's why I mentioned earlier that that the dictatorships do have an asymmetric advantage over uh, over democracies. But I do think the government, uh, and I and I'm hopeful that the government is doing something, uh, partly by way uh, by way of bringing attention to and publicity about. Uh, Chinese intervention in uh, both Hollywood and in the gaming industry, which really, which really have large consequences. I'm hopeful that the government is, is go going to get very active on that front. But from the standpoint of forcing companies to do things, I think it'd be very hard. I would make one, one uh, other point here, however. Uh, in the case of the uh, Thousand Talents Program, which is an effort to recruit researchers to, to steal intellectual property, there was a Harvard professor who was recently charged, I don't think he's been prosecuted yet, but charged under a criminal indictment for participating in that program. Not because that program is illegal, uh, but because he lied on his applications for grants uh, that he had no connection with that program. So there are some, there are some levers uh, to get into this uh, that are, that are uh, somewhat restricted, but uh, there are advantages nevertheless. Uh, you had a sub, a sub point on one of your slides about Taiwan. And there's a concern uh, among at least one of our viewers that ta Taiwan could be a future global flashpoint. And what can the U.S. do? This may go beyond intelligence, but this is public policy. Do you agree uh, that uh, Taiwan could be a global flashpoint? And Taiwan could be a global flashpoint. I, ha I have to say that, uh, that I think the Chinese are especially effective at posturing um, but I think they've also been very careful. I think, I think the, the South China Sea is a hugely important strategic issue for the Chinese. They've been engaged in terraforming, which is to say creating islands and saying these islands belong to China. Therefore, they, uh, therefore they expand their, uh, their territorial water zone. So, well, so what, they, what they've been doing is uh, there's no question that it's aggressive. The question obviously is to what extent would they back it up by force? And I believe the United States uh, and other Western countries are in a position to take a stronger stand uh, on the South China Sea because I think the I think the Chinese will push as hard as they can on that up until the point that force is required. And I think if I think if push comes to shove, 
uh, I think they would be I think they would be reluctant to use force. So 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 I believe that we do have we do have some advantages here to exercise other instruments of power up to up to and including military shows of force, uh, but obviously short of actual uh, short of actual uh, engagement in combat. Uh, any last words on cyber warfare and one of the main themes of your talk about uh, how the world has changed with social media and with uh, uh, the great capabilities that come because we're networked all together? Well, Gary, uh, that is such an important issue. I, I referred to this to the cyber developments as actually a revolution in intelligence and counterintelligence. And if you look at the history of intelligence, it clearly clearly qualifies that. It's, a, it's been a fundamental game changer. We're, we're late, I think, in coming to realize uh, the impact and importance of, uh, of uh, cyber attacks and cyber warfare. I do think that dictatorships, Russia and China, uh, have been ahead of us. By the way, I didn't talk about Iran and North Korea, but they both have good cyber capabilities. They're not in the same league as Russia and China, uh, but we, we have been latecomers to it. I mean, I think there's no technological reason for it. I think that I, I think the reasons really have to do with a, a delayed and belated appreciation for how vulnerable we are, how poor our defenses are, uh, and all the reasons why we really shouldn't be very aggressive in offensive attacks using using cyber weapons. I do think that we're waking up. However, I, I'm very hopeful, partly because of the Biden-Putin summit, and partly because. Biden actually called uh, called Putin and uh, made a telephone call to reinforce uh, his position, which I think is a very important one, clearly articulated, uh, that we're in the game now. We're quite serious about this. Uh, and if you contain these cyber attacks, even under the guise uh, of, uh, of criminals, uh, uh, Russian criminals, uh, that there will be consequences. That is, that is more than just an implied threat to use our offensive capabilities. Uh, and in fact, the New York Times actually uh, made, made the point that uh, this is a very, very thinly veiled threat that, that Biden is probably serious about it. And hopefully that the, the fact that the Russians had a much less aggressive posture in the 2020 election, it may mean that they're slowly uh, coming to the realization that uh, we're going to be in this more seriously than we have been in the past. Okay, thank you. It's a wonderfully intense one hour. If people would like copies of Jim's slides, you can write us at seminars at steamboat at gmail.com. That's two ads. Seminars at steamboat at gmail.com. So thank you very much, Jim. Thank you, Gary. It's been my pleasure. This has been a special presentation of Seminars at Steamboat. For more information about the seminars, visit seminars at steamboat.org. The podcast was produced by Ryan Thompson for KUNC. Special thanks to Jenny Lay, Doug Usher, and the Steamboat Pilot and Today for their support. Find information on future seminars at seminarsatsteamboat.org. Music is When I'm With You by Scott Holmes. Find more of his work at scottholmesmusic.com. This is KUNC.